Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Before I get into my usual intro, I just want to say at the beginning of this episode that I've changed my format a little bit. I usually do some bumper music and I do some quotes that fold into the bumper music. And most all of those quotes come from congressional testimony that's occurred really going back to the 1990s and the beginning of big amateurism and the real juggernaut that has become the Power Five conferences. But that takes a little turnaround time to get all that put together and mixed. And, and I send some of that stuff out and the turnaround time isn't on pace with what I want to do because I really need to talk. And I'm just going to just crank out as many episodes as I can. So this is no frills, no fancy editing. The editing is going to be very minimalist. So I hope that works. I don't know. But the usual stuff I say is that you can find all my podcast materials at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. So if you found me on a third-party directory, you can see my, all my show notes. And I link to some resources. And there's a little bit about me and about why I'm doing this. And then I also have a blog that I've been writing in for a little over two and a half years. And the name of that blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And I want to start this episode by talking really on an emotional level about yesterday. And yesterday, the Supreme Court issued its Austin ruling. And it was a, had a really interesting range of emotions because the lawyer in me had me skeptical as I'm reading the case about the limitations. And there are substantial limitations, and I've talked about them before, and I'll talk about them some more. But I also held out some hope because this was a unanimous decision. And even though the way the issues were framed by the parties— and you know, the Supreme Court takes the case as they find it. And I talked at length about that in the episodes just after the oral argument on March 31st. But I still had this sense of relief almost. And it was this relief that someone who's been subject to abusive gaslighting finally figures out that they were right all along, that what they were being told, what, what they were being manipulated to believe was not the truth. And there's enormous power in that. But one of the other emotions I experienced was sadness. And the reason that I felt that, I, could, I really couldn't put my finger on it at first. And it took me a little while to see where that really needed to land. And I don't talk a lot about myself or my history. In the very first episode, I did maybe 10, 12 minutes on my background, just so that listeners could understand that I have a background that gives me some credibility on these issues, I believe. But I talked about my basketball mentor and good friend, Dick DeVenzio, and he really inspired me and brought me into the athletes' rights movement and way of thinking in the mid-1980s. And Dick was a true pioneer in the athletes' rights movement. Dick was an all-American basketball player. He's from Pittsburgh. He was a point guard, 5'10", lefty, and he was one of the top point guards in the country. And he was recruited by John Wooden and Dean Smith and Vic Bubis at, at Duke. And back then, Vic Bubis was as prominent a coach as any coach in the country, except for John Wooden, probably. But Dick was the real deal as a basketball player, and he chose to go to Duke. 
And when he finished at Duke in 1971, I was just a little kid and I started going to his camps over in Raleigh and it was just a blast. And that's when I really fell in love with basketball. And I had watched Dick when he played at Duke and he was my favorite player because I'm a little point guard and I'm a lefty. And for my whole childhood and and into high school, I, I wanted to be like him and I wanted to play for Duke University. And Dick and I, over the years and through high school, started working at his camp. We became really good friends and had a lot in common. And then I wound up at Duke and then I I walked on to the basketball team in Coach K's first year and then ultimately got a spot on the roster, a full spot on the roster. Then I got a scholarship and then I was a team captain. And I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity. And as I was finishing up at Duke, Dick was really starting to begin thinking strategically about the athletes' rights movement. And he was a very smart guy and a very dynamic thinker. And he was an academic All-American while he was at Duke. And he was not afraid to ruffle feathers. He was a rebel's rebel. And he started really putting his name out there. And he was writing articles and he was sending newsletters to athletes. And he wrote a book in 1986 that I did some work on. But through this process, Dick and I had many, many discussions well into the night. There were times that we were up until 2 and 3 in the morning going back back and forth. And I didn't want to back down in an argument. And I often took the devil's advocate position, which was really the status quo position. And quite frankly, I believed in some of that. I wasn't all in for athletes should be paid and that the athletes were being exploited. I sure as heck wasn't being exploited. I felt like I I was in a really incredible environment. And I got way more from Duke than I could ever give to Duke. And I'm very grateful for that experience. But Dick was in a different position because he had schools all over the country begging him to come there. And he had market value. And he understood what the revenue producing athletes went through. I had just a front row seat to that. And I had a peek inside the bubble. But I had no experiential understanding of what those guys went through. And it's now as a full adult and well into my midlife, I look back on that with different eyes and I realize how impressive the guys were who were really carrying the laboring oars for those Duke teams early on. And so Dick and I went back and forth and I would give him all the arguments that I could muster. And I was headed to law school and we had some feisty conversations. But the evolution of my thinking on this was so influenced by Dick's courage and the fact that he put himself out there. And he became a big name in college sports, athletes' rights, advocacy. And he was frequently mentioned in all these national news stories. He was on 60 Minutes and he traveled around and did speaking engagements. And he tried to organize actually a boycott of some bowl games. I think it was in 86, if I'm not mistaken, just to show the absurdity of some of these games that had no meaning. And the players didn't really want to play. And Dick's thinking was, if you took the money you spent on these ridiculous, stupid bowls and you put it on the table and said to to the athletes, you can either go to this bowl game or you can split this money. What do you think they would do? So these bowl games are really just to pad coaches' resumes and schools could get another opportunity to be on TV. But I think for a lot of them, the football players really didn't have much use for them. And now Dick's name is a part of the discussion, but not as big a part of it as I think it should be. And unfortunately, Dick passed away about 20 years ago from cancer. And so he hasn't seen what's happened since 2000. 
He hasn't seen these antitrust cases starting with White in 2006 and carrying through to what happened yesterday, this amazing thing that happened yesterday. And when I was tapping into the source of my sadness yesterday, it was that Dick couldn't see this. He's not here to see it. And this would be a day where I would love to know what he really thought. And I would love to see the joy in his face. And I would love to see him pumping his fist in the air. And I would love to see him jumping on the computer and sending out messages and just getting into the fray. He got into the fray and it was really inspiring. And he didn't get to see that yesterday. And that's really sad to me. But I just, I felt like I needed to mention that because my, my audience is picking up. And just in the last, I don't know, two weeks, I'm getting a lot more traffic. So I guess more people are listening. And I think maybe I should talk a little bit more about how I perceive this. So I went through a good part of my adult life kind of being an agnostic on the athlete's rights thing. That started to change as the business model really took on an element of racial exploitation. And that just sat with me and it sat with me. And that's one of the reasons that two and a half years ago, I re-engaged with athletes' rights and really went in and did some deep, deep research into these antitrust suits. I read nearly every document that was in the dockets in these big antitrust suits and then a couple of other suits that I thought were really important in the athletes' rights context. And I've read all the trial transcripts and that's a lot of information. And I've I've absorbed them in a way that I think runs through the filter of this lifetime of thinking about these issues a little bit differently from a lot of folks. And I hope that my work, both in my blog and in my podcast, reflects that. But I went on to law school and had a nice legal career and had a case in the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't talk about that either. But that informs my thinking about what's happening in the federal judiciary. And it certainly impacted my thinking on the Austin uh, case and how I analyzed it. And I did a fair amount of appellate advocacy. But Dick's legend is big among people who really understand the athletes' rights movement. And Walter Byers, the former president of the NCAA in 1995 in that tell-all book, he devotes a couple of pages uh, to Dick. And Dick was a thorn in the NCAA's side, and he really pissed people off at the NCAA national office. And he pulled some public relations stunts that also ruffled a lot of feathers. But I think now they would be viewed as appropriate and, and probably pretty entertaining. And I, there, there will come a time when I get into all of that more specifically because I want to devote a couple of episodes to, to Dick and do him justice. But I just felt the need to talk about that right now because that was really on my mind yesterday when I was processing this case. And in addition to that Byers book, Dick was mentioned in the Nocera book, Indentured. And I've seen him mentioned in some law review articles. And it's really fun as I was going through the, the research. And I've read, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of law review articles and economics uh, articles and scholarly works on college sports and higher education and trying to put all this stuff together in a way that makes sense. And I would occasionally run across a reference to Dick and I, I would uh, bookmark all those. And I, I'm going to use those when I talk about him in other episodes. But yesterday was a really big day, and I think, if for no other reason, and this leads me into really one of the first things I want to talk about, is that there was a unanimity in that decision, and I think that there's power in that. And I didn't mention the unanimity yesterday. When I was predicting back as the briefing was playing out in January and February, 
and then through the oral argument and the episodes I did before and after, and I did four episodes devoted to Austin and, and this antitrust issue, the legal issue, before the oral argument, and then I did five episodes after. And I think those are episodes uh, seven through 16. And I would urge you to listen to those in, in order, and I think you'll get a really good sense of how all these uh, important issues, not just the legal issues, but the surrounding justice issues and the equity issues and the impact of the NCAA's congressional campaign, all that stuff rolls together. And there aren't a lot of people, I don't think, talking about it in that way and bringing all these elements of the NCAA's campaign to end the athletes' rights movement and talk about it in a way that the NCAA doesn't want people to talk about it (laughs) because it is just a dark, cynical campaign. And they were very close to pulling it off and they're not finished yet as i said yesterday they are not done they're not going anywhere they're going to fight to the last breath to preserve their empire the regulatory power and their money their money their money and mark emmert's gotten used to his four million dollar salary and i don't think he wants that to go away and we'll talk about a little bit about that today as well but i was surprised by the unanimity in some of these episodes that i was doing after the oral argument I thought there were a couple of justices who really weren't buying the athlete's argument. Justice Breyer had me a little bit worried. Justice Sotomayor had me a little bit worried. Justice Barrett had me a little bit worried. Justice Thomas as well. And and I was informed by some of his prior decisions that I never got around to talking about. But I had in the back of my mind that uh, there was a decision in 2000, the Brentwood decision involving whether athletic associations are state actors. And Thomas dissented in that case and had some comments that made me think he was NCAA all the way. So I was worried about that. So when I first heard the news that the it was a unanimous decision, I was like, wow. So not a single United States Supreme Court justice bought a single argument that the NCAA put out and has been putting out for decades because they tried the same tactic in the O'Bannon suit. The U.S. Supreme Court didn't take O'Bannon. It died on the courthouse steps in 2016. And at that time, there was a 4-4 court because Scalia had passed away. So I think they were being a little more selective about the cases they took. But I wish they could have taken that case because the features of that Ninth Circuit O'Bannon decision that were folded into Austin are a problem, I think, for the athletes going forward. But this was a huge day and the unanimity was important. And I think sometimes people get a little bit manipulated by some media interests about the Supreme Court. And I I think now with the 6-3 imbalance, there are a lot of uh, progressive media outlets that just can't let go of the narrative that this is a evil court that's going to run roughshod over everyone's rights. And I don't see a lot of evidence of that, quite frankly. The other thing is that even with this court and in these divided courts that we've had for the last, I don't know, 30 years, these 5-4 courts with a wild card in the middle like Anthony Kennedy or John Roberts, I think that there's a misunderstanding that unanimity is just this rare outlier. And that's not true. The court... I think in a quarter to a third of the cases actually comes down with a unanimous decision. 
And in the cases that aren't that newsworthy or don't press a, a political or social cultural button, those 9-0 decisions just disappear because they really aren't that important. What we hear about are the 5-4 decisions and the hot button issue decisions. And this Austin case has gotten a lot of attention. So I wonder, I just wonder, because of the pressure that this court is under, because of the new composition of the court and the pressure it's been under really for decades now as the legislative branch has become almost completely ineffective and the executive branch has grown into this monster uh, monarchical kind of uh, beast that the Constitution never envisioned, the U.S. Supreme Court has their finger in the dike and there's a lot of pressure on the other side of that finger. And I think they've done really an extraordinary job of doing their best to keep it right down the middle. So I think they are conscious of their image, they, and they should be, and we need them to be because of the important role that they're serving now, because of the dysfunction in the other two branches. But I don't see a lot of evidence of this hardcore partisanship that you keep uh, hearing about in certain media outlets. And in this case, because it was a case that drew enormous attention and was going to get a lot of press coverage, I believe that they felt like they basically agreed on the antitrust issues. And because of the way the issue was framed, they didn't have to really get into all these other issues, just as Kavanaugh did it in his concurring opinion. And I think that was a good thing. The same thing happened in the Ninth Circuit with Austin. And one of the judges on that three-judge panel, Mylon Smith, wrote a concurring opinion that's not really that different from Kavanaugh. So it had the same kind of effect. But the court had the luxury, I think, of being able to just focus on the four corners of this narrow injunction, apply standard traditional antitrust principles. They had the backing of the United States government when the U.S. intervened in the case. So I think that some of the hot button issues that came up at oral argument really were outside of the way they were thinking about this case. And there was unanimity, I think, uh, on the basic antitrust principles that were relevant, how they were applied, and whether there should be any alteration to that. And the court just said, no, the lower courts did exactly what they were supposed to do under antitrust principles, and the NCAA is no different than anybody else, and they're going to get the same scrutiny. And that's that. So there really wasn't a lot to it beyond that. But I do think that if you're a Breyer or you're a Barrett or Sotomayor or Thomas, and you had some second thoughts, you wanted to say something in a I think this was a case where you kind of keep your powder dry because I think the court also understood that underneath this Byzantine rule of reason antitrust analysis were some powerful social issues, including social justice. And the NCAA and the Power Five and the in-system stakeholders have been purposefully blind, willfully ignorant to those issues. And those issues are percolating up and they're coming up. And those are the kinds of issues that are just irrepressible. And I think that the court's unanimous ruling was a very subtle message to the NCAA and the big time football interests that they simply aren't getting it right. They aren't getting it right. And as I said yesterday, I think really the legacy of this case is unwritten and it remains to be seen how it's going to play out in terms of the incremental approach to whittling away at amateurism. And it's been a very slow go. 
But we're seeing some forward progress here, and I think that's good. But I think that's also why Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence was so important, because he was in the percolating issues just beneath the surface, and he was talking honestly about them. And I heard some critiques of Kavanaugh's concurrence, read one from a law professor. I don't remember where he was from. But he went on some mini rant about this was the most anti-NCAA, anti-sports, blah, blah, blah. No, that's not how I saw it. I saw it not as anti-NCAA, but as pro-liberty, pro-freedom, pro-free markets, pro-egalitarianism, pro-civil rights, pro-American. And the NCAA does not want to look at the issues that way. In fact, they want the opposite. They want the American public. They've gotten the American public to buy into the fraud that if you don't believe in amateurism and the student athlete and the collegiate model, then you're un-American. And that's exactly what happened in that June 9th hearing when Roger Wicker, <laughs> I, Roger Wicker from Mississippi, pointed the finger at Rod Gilmore, an African-American and said, you're the problem because if you're not on board with amateurism, you're not on board with this preemption, if you're not on board with the preserving the interests of the NCAA and the Power Five, then you are the outlier. You're the misfit. You're the problem. And Gilmore was making argument, explicitly making arguments that were based on fundamental principles of American liberty and freedom and justice. And he was singled out as the bad guy. Thank you, Roger Wicker. So I, don't, I haven't been to his website. I don't know what he said about the case, if anything. But I have done kind of a quick survey. And it's just, again, I, I shouldn't be surprised by this, but I guess I am. So you go to the website of every Power Five conference. These conference entities are completely separate entities. And they operate as a separate entity. And all the conference revenue runs through. And it's a it's big business. And their websites are really bling to champion all the wonderful things that's happening in, the, in that conference. And then, oh, you can go to the conference store and spend a bunch of money. Go America. Hey, go USA. But across those five conferences, which are the business of big-time college sports, only one conference had even a reference, mention, an acknowledgement that this U.S. Supreme Court decision came down on Monday. And that was the Big Ten. So the ACC, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC are operating as if that decision doesn't exist. It was never issued. They're just pretending that it never happened. And the NCAA is so good at that. These massive corporate in-system stakeholders have created an alternate world where they get to decide whether news actually exists, not what it is and how they respond to it, but whether it exists. And you have to remember these major conferences and all of the in-system stakeholders at the institutional level, at the NCAA, they have access to immediate access to the uh, most powerful media outlets in the history of Western civilization. And they can get a message out to the entire world with a single phone call, a single email, a single text. And the silence here is just really revealing in my judgment. And all of these interests during this Iron Throne campaign that began in May of 2019, 
They haven't been shy about using those connections and getting their message out and having it amplified and coordinated and creating this impression. And this goes back to that South Hall Starowski article on spontaneous consent and propaganda, that when you have all these powerful interests releasing the same message at the same time and then amplifying it through circular reinforcement, it's almost impossible to fight against that. And they create this immediate spontaneous consent to principles that some of which make no sense at all. Like promoting all these fluffy ideals that the NCAA can't even define, much less defend, like amateurism, the collegiate model, and the student-athlete. So these Power Five interests have been working behind the scenes double time for the last two years, trying to get their way and have the market fixed to their liking. And there were conference commissioners who testified in the Senate in this campaign through these hearings starting in February of 2020. And all of their minions out in the field have been parroting the message. And the message has been, we need to get absolute control of the regulation of college sports, and we need to snuff out the athletes' rights movement. They don't say that explicitly, but that's their purpose. And they're wrapping it up in all these fluffy principles. But these people are working in higher education. Wouldn't you think that they would at least acknowledge the reality on the ground and the re- reality on the ground as of June 21st, 2021, is that the U- United States Supreme Court issued a unanimous decision which may fundamentally alter the course and future of college sports. And they, they've swallowed their microphones. They've swallowed their keyboards. It's just really amazing. So let me just read this Big Ten statement. And it's titled, Big Ten Conference Statement on Monday's Supreme Court. Ruling, and it's very short. The Big Ten Conference and our member institutions are carefully reviewing the implications of yesterday's Supreme Court decision in the Austin case, including how they may relate to nil to determine the best path forward for our student athletes and for conference athletics generally. We remain committed to providing opportunities to our student athletes and supporting them in all aspects of their academic and athletic endeavors. The Big Ten Conference strongly supports NCAA nil rules that protect student athletes without putting them in a vulnerable position of risking their NCAA eligibility by exercising the rights soon to be afforded to them under state law. (laughs) I don't even know where to begin. First of all, you're back to this just profound denial that was evidenced by Mark Emmert's statement, his terse kind of temper tantrum statement, the day of the ruling. And there is absolutely nothing that talks about what the court ruled, the significance of it historically, and the fact that it was a unanimous decision and the message that I think the court was sending. The Big Ten doesn't want to talk about that. They're pretending that didn't happen. They're only talking about this in the context of nil, and they're they're, uh, carefully thinking about the implications of this suit. No, what they're thinking about is how they're going to try to undermine this ruling and how they can propagandize around it. And this BS, and there was a 
Power 5 letter that was released in the media, one of these deals where some sports writer gets a hold of it, and it was a purposeful leak, no doubt. But there were some suggestions that the Power 5 wanted the NCAA to just issue these broad principles that supported the basic conception of the collegiate model and amateurism and the student-athlete, and let the institutions make their own name, image, and likeness policies. That's a whole nother uh, episode. And now they're arguing, uh, after having said for two years now that there needs to be a single uniform standard, they're now turning the decision-making process over to 1,100 institutions where theoretically you could have 1,100 different standards. But this notion that any NCAA athlete who resides in one of the six states that has a nil law that's going to go into effect on July 1st will be penalized by the NCAA in an eligibility enforcement and infractions case is so absurd on its face because, first of all, when I said this in the, I don't know, a couple episodes ago, all of these state laws say that an NCAA athlete who is acting in accordance with any of these state laws. And remember, five of these state laws are in SEC schools, big-time SEC schools. And if an athlete's acting in accordance with those state laws, they cannot be punished by a national governing association, namely the National Collegiate Athletic Association. So if the NCAA came into Alabama or to Georgia or to Florida or to Mississippi or wherever there's a state law going into effect, and they started saying that any athlete who exercised their nil options under those state laws in a way that was inconsistent with existing NCAA regulations, that they were ineligible, there would be an immediate injunction filed by the athlete, by the school, freezing that regulatory action because they're trying to override a legitimate state law. And they don't have the power to do that. They're a private actor. They can't come in and just say, well, we decided that this state law is is invalid and we're just going to act as if it's invalid. And the other thing is Mark Emmert and the NCAA have been saying the same thing. We don't want anybody to have their eligibility at risk. Well, you know what, Mark? You're the only one who can put it at risk. The NCAA is the only entity that can put these athletes' eligibility at risk by initiating an enforcement action or declaring any athlete in these states who uses their nil pursuant to the state laws as uh, ineligible. Only you can do that. So you've said publicly that you're not going to do that, and you want to take action to prevent that from happening. Again, it's so illogical on its face. Play this tape forward for a second. Let's assume that on July 1st, the NCAA says, issues a statement that any athlete in the state of Alabama who exercises their rights pursuant to the Alabama state no law is ineligible to play. Immediately ineligible. Can you imagine what that would look like? First of all, it's not going to happen because the Power Five own Mark Emmert and the NCAA national office. So whatever is happening here, it's being dictated by the Power Five football interests. We just don't know exactly how it's going to play out yet. But there's no way in hell that the NCAA is going into the state of Alabama and telling Alabama and Auburn football players and Nick Saban that those guys can't take the field this fall. That's an absurd proposition. And the Big Ten knows it, the SEC knows it, the ACC, Big 12, Pac-12, they all know that. And Mark Emmert knows that. So this reframing of the nil issue in the 11th hour 
to create another sky is falling scenario is just almost comical, really, that they would put that out there. So that's not an issue. What this press release is saying, we don't know what the hell to do. (laughs) And we're backed into a corner. And we're not going to acknowledge the importance of this ruling. We're not going to phrase it and couch it and frame it in terms of how important this is for athletes. These people are supposed to be in the business of athlete well-being and promoting athletes' interests. And, of course, this statement begs the question, the very large question of where the hell are the university presidents and chancellors? Where's Rebecca Blank? Where are the university presidents who are on the board of governors? Where are the Power Five university presidents? Why aren't they cheering this as a victory for civil rights? Why not? They're nowhere. And I think the same is true of the coaches. So I did a search for Mark Few. Mark Few, who I really admire as a coach, and I think he's a good guy. He's the Gonzaga men's head basketball coach. He testified in the United States Senate just, what, 10, 11 days ago. And he made the case that he really wanted these athletes to get some name, image, and likeness rights, but only if there was national uniformity. So he was all on board with the NCAA's ultimate goal, which was to preempt these state laws, to take them off the books. But I couldn't find anything. Where's Mark Few saying, this is a great day for college athletes. What about the Hall of Fame coaches? The coaches who have dedicated their lives to making these athletes' lives better. And they are. They do that. They believe that. And I think there's a golden handcuffs problem there. We'll, I'll talk about that later when I talk about coaches. But why aren't they lining up or holding a joint press conference to say, hallelujah, hallelujah. So you have this veil of silence throughout the sports world of the people who are supposed to be in charge and are supposed to be the guardians of athlete well-being and athletes' rights and everything that they want us to believe about the beauty of college sports. And this statement from Mark Emmert, he should have been fired on the spot. And the problem is that the Board of Governors who hires and fires the NCAA president, Mark Emmert's not elected by the membership. He's not elected by any body that is actually elected within the governance structure. So the Board of Governors, those people are appointed. They're not elected, and they're self-appointed. So the Board of Governors just brings in new members, and who knows how those decisions are made? We don't know. They operate like a star chamber. And Mark Emmert reports to them and them alone, and it's a very cozy relationship. We have no idea what the hell goes on behind the scenes in, in those two positions, powerful positions in the NCAA. And nobody's asking. The media's not asking. Congress isn't asking. The institutional stakeholders, the the university presidents and chancellors, they're not asking. And who knows? It may very well be that we'll see statements starting to trickle out once the visibility of the story decreases. And what's the half-life of a big story in in a a news cycle in 2021? Who, Who knows? But there were no instant present impressions from any of these crucial stakeholders and these advocates who have gone out into the public domain and taken open and provocative positions on the business of big-time college sports and the relationship of institutional interest to the athlete. Where are they? So if they come out now, if we start getting these statements and they've gone to their PR people trying to come up with some way to have a coordinated message that uh, preserves their interests but doesn't make them look like absolute buffoons, we might, we might get that. I don't know what that message is going to look like. Hopefully it's better than the one that Mark Emmert gave, but it's too late. 
It's too late. What, what did you feel? What was your initial gut reaction? Wouldn't you have loved to have been sitting next to any of those people or any of the senators who are trying to screw these kids, the Republican senators? Wouldn't it have been great to have the opportunity to be that fly on the wall when they learned about the Supreme Court's decision? Were they smiling? Were they happy? Were they relieved? Or were they spitting on their computer screen, gnashing their teeth and kicking over the trash can? What do you think? And the silence is deafening. So what does that tell you? It tells you that these athletes, and I said this in my episodes on judicial fealty to amateurism and then the Austin guessing game, where I talked at length about this cycle of these big events, like with the filing of White and then the filing of O'Bannon and then the filing of Austin and then the California Fair Pay to Play Act, all these milestone events that were trumpeted in the athletes' rights movement and in the media as these potentially transformative events ended in a whimper, okay, except for this Austin case. So we finally have something that doesn't end in a whimper, but that's a symbolic whimper because when you actually look at what the athletes might get out of this very, very limited order, it's unlikely that you're going to see an arms race for the provision of education-related benefits that fall within the scope of the order. And very little attention has been given to the actual terms of the injunction. And I I guess I want to address that as kind of a legal issue. Uh, And I'm deferring my full legal analysis to, to another episode. But the injunction order itself is the case. So all the stuff in the district court opinion, the Ninth Circuit opinion, the Supreme Court opinion, what matters here is the terms of that injunction order and whether or not it is valid, whether it uh, was done properly under the analysis that the court applied. That's really all that was at issue here. And I did a post called the NCAA is winning the litigation war. And I went into the vaults, the electronic vaults to pull out the actual injunction because in the opinions that get published online, they don't include the injunction itself. They refer to the injunction and you can get a sense of what the description of the injunction is, but you don't have the actual injunction itself. So I pulled that from the electronic vaults in Austin, but I went through in detail item by item paragraph by paragraph, page by page to explain how it worked. And on the back side of that analysis, an analysis that nobody who's talking about it has done, <laughs> people in the media and all these people who are, are uh, punditizing about it, you can only come away with one conclusion. And that is that this was a very carefully, narrowly tailored injunction that, as the decision yesterday acknowledged, uh, was crafted with humility. And Judge Wilkin wasn't trying to make a statement here. It was a very conservative, lowercase c, injunction. And that just uh, goes to show you how the truth and the facts just get mangled in uh, these media presentations and the NCAA propaganda and the sky is falling and half a million dollar internships and Rolls Royce cars and all this stuff, which is just an outright lie. Those were just outright lies. And the Ninth Circuit saw it and dismissed them. The Supreme Court saw it and dismiss them. And the other thing that I I don't know if I really addressed adequately yesterday, and and this is just so, so important because it goes right to NCAA motivations. And that is that the court pretty clearly said, why the hell did you appeal this case? And they didn't say this part, but I think this is an important component of the irony of the appeal. The NCAA 
lost a case, a contested case, where it was opposing the provision of education benefits that the NCAA's rules prohibited. Why didn't the NCAA just say, yeah, we're going to give these benefits. Tell us what you want. We'll do the best to make it happen. And that, that's a good thing because we are an educational nonprofit. This is our mission. And in the Ninth Circuit oral argument, that irony was not lost on the advocates or, quite frankly, the judges. You are litigating to the death and then appealing a case that requires you to provide the very benefits that your nonprofit mission says that you should be providing. And you just can't make this stuff up. And then the other thing that, that I think the court was saying was that, look, this is just a no-brainer antitrust analysis. You don't have antitrust immunity. All your arguments for it are bogus. And under a normal rule of reason analysis, this is a very conservative application of it. It's a very conservative injunction, and you lose. So why did you bring this case? And this goes to show you the NCAA's arrogance, because they were asking for antitrust immunity in Congress, and that's really the only place they should get it. I'm not a huge fan of judicially created immunities, because they don't really fold in the important societal interests and, and social interests that I think should be relevant in granting somebody a free pass from having to comply with laws that protect American freedoms. And... The court was saying, you just shot yourself in the foot here. And they absolutely did. They, sh they shot themselves in the foot because they were trying to get two bites at the apple at the same time. And boy, and that bite on the judicial side, they got a mouthful of worms and they earned it. They made that call and their lawyers made that call. That also, I think, points out the absence of leadership at the Board of Governors level because the Board of Governors has explicit and exclusive jurisdiction under Article 4 of the NCAA Constitution to either initiate or settle litigation. And they and they alone make that decision. So the Board of Governors was making these calls, and I'm guessing they were listening to the lawyers and the lobbyists and the PR people, and they just got all fat and happy about pushing this case through the appellate process. The athletes didn't appeal this case. The NCAA did. And it was an unnecessary appeal, and it's a really bad look. And now it has set a precedent, a unanimous precedent, that the NCAA can't challenge that really shines a light on just how corrupt the NCAA is and the big-time college sports business model. So I want to talk about a couple other things here just to sort of continue my venting on this whole emotional last day and a half. But I wanted to talk a little bit about how disorganized the athletes' rights movement has been at a structural level. And I titled this episode, An Organized Lie is More Powerful Than a Disorganized Truth. And I'm not sure who, who coined that phrase, and, but it applies to so many aspects of human nature and American culture. And the more organized you are, the more power you can aggregate. And that's why lobbyists have an entire industry, <laughs> these public relations people and these spin doctors and all that. But as I have explained in detail in my episodes in Pay for Play and also in the post-Austin prisoner's dilemma context, the NCAA, particularly starting in 2006 with the beginning waves of these antitrust suits filed by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits, they began to formulate a, a purposeful, forward-looking strategic plan that was very sophisticated and very organized. 
And it brought in some elements of the early iterations of that strategy, that very organized strategy that go back to Walter Byers when he invented the student athlete to try to uh, beat back potential workers' compensation liability. It was a fraud. He admitted that in his 1995 tell-all book on sportsmanlike conduct. He said that out loud. But that's just been brought through and, and just has been propagandized into a concept of virtue that is, that is unchallengeable now, the student athlete. But it's a fraud. It's an outright fraud. So over the years, this movement has become more and more organized as the business model has grown and the value in the product has increased. And again, as I said yesterday, a lot of that's because of the uh, freedom that big-time football got through Board of Regents in 1984. But as we roll through the end of conference realignment and the Power Five come into shape, and then they have increasingly separated their interests from the rest of the NCAA, and they did that in 2014 with this autonomy classification that was really the product of uh, fear of what the court might do in O'Bannon. But, and then you had these external threats increasing through state legislatures and through some threats in the House of Representatives that there was going to be some legislation to do for the NCAA, but it had refused to do voluntarily, and that is to bring the business model into the 21st century. So the NCAA in 2014, in earnest, brought their organized campaign for the Iron Throne of College regulation together as a very sophisticated, well-oiled, multifaceted campaign. And they brought all of their expertise and their lobbying and their legal strategy inside the Beltway. And that was such an important transition. And I talked about it in those episodes about uh, that year 2014, which is so pivotal in big-time college sports. But the NCAA has had access to unlimited resources to put together this machine, this juggernaut of power at the political level, at the legal level, at the lobbying level, at the public relations level, that's unlike anything that college sports has ever seen. And they took that into this athletes' rights debate and then this fortuitous opportunity in 2019 to take this name, image, and likeness uh, compensation campaign and use it as a Trojan horse for getting federal protections and immunities that would have eliminated the athletes' rights movement. They have their eyes on this prize, the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. They know how they're going to get it. They have their strategy, and now they just execute it. And then on the other side, the, the other army, you can't even call them an army. And those are these ragtag assortments of athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. It's just like this group of misfit insurgent groups that don't talk to each other, that aren't really well-resourced, that have no experience in the game of public relations or political lobbying or coordinating litigation strategy. And they have no built-in power. So the odds are just unbelievable. And in the attorney's fees litigation, in O'Bannon. After the Supreme Court said it wasn't going to take the case and the lower court, the magistrate uh, judge and the district court, and ultimately the Ninth Circuit told the NCAA that they had to pay the athletes their attorney's fees. But the magistrate judge, a guy named Nathaniel Cousins, wrote an opinion in which he awarded the athletes attorney's fees. 
And the NCAA in their briefing had tried to characterize the O'Bannon case as really in two phases, and they used the metaphor of a, a tale of two cities. And Judge Cousins, in response to that, said this. Perhaps a more apt allusion would have been to George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones, where individuals with seemingly long odds overcome unthinkable challenges but suffer stark losses along the path to victory. In Martin's world, quote, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground, end quote. You win or you die. And that is exactly what it is like for these athletes to fight against not just the NCAA, but this juggernaut of power five might at the political level, the educational level, the financial level, the most powerful institutions of higher education in America and in the world, quite frankly, coming together to suppress your economic liberties. And then they're doing it in conjunction with some of the most powerful corporate interests in the entire sports entertainment industry and the mega conglomerate companies that run it. All those interests operating together. And then you bring in the U.S. Senate. Those Republican senators were just hacking for the NCAA. That is a a very powerful set of interests operating in concert to defeat a group of young athletes who have nobody fighting for them, nobody organizing for them. They don't have a union. They don't have lobbyists. So the the last thing I want to talk about here, and this really just goes to how rotten the NCAA is from the inside out, particularly at the NCAA national office, which I think should just be shut down. We need a forensic accounting. We, We haven't even scratched the surface of the potential corruption in the NCAA national office. And I talked about that also and how the curiosity among the faculty interests that had been, you know, clamoring for information about how the national office was run back when athletics directors were running it and when Walter Byers was running it. But when Miles Brand, a university president, a colleague took over, all of a sudden that curiosity evaporated. And Mark Emmert's a high roller, and he likes the shiny objects, and he will spend a lot of money to be surrounded by them. And it's money that he's gotten off the backs of these athletes. But nobody's asking, let's see what's going on in the cave of the NCAA national office. Again, the curiosity is just evaporated. That doesn't make any sense to me. But the NCAA office needs a thorough forensic accounting And then we can fold that into an assessment of what college sports ought to look like going forward, because I think we just need a completely different way of thinking about the governance structure. And we can't have this centralized black hole that a billion dollars just gets dumped into every year where there's zero accountability for how it's spent. Zero. And the athletes are entitled to that. The athletes who generate that revenue are entitled to know how that money is spent. And the NCAA just gives them the double-barreled flip-off. And again, they've been allowed to get away with that because Congress has let them and the member institutions have let them and the Power Five presidents have let them. How do you respond to that, that lack of responsibility and oversight? And, And then I just want to segue that into this last thing, and that is Mark Emmert. I haven't done episodes on him, and I have some thoughts on him. I've been bookmarking things, and I have a long list of things that I want to talk about. 
But uh, a lot of people are starting to, you know, point the finger at Mark Emmert, and he's a terrible leader. But I think that completely misunderstands what the NCAA wants, really what the Power Five want, because this entire dysfunctional business model is the product of big-time powerful football interests owning the NCAA national office and leaving them to be satisfied with their consolation prize after Board of Regents, and that is the CBS Turner March Madness contract. So 70% of revenue in all this big-time college sports marketplace comes from football, big-time football. Basketball is a second fiddle financially, but it is a big fiddle with the NCAA national office because the NCAA gets its paws on that $1.1 billion every year, and they don't get a, a, a single finger on any of the football revenue. So the Power Five own Mark Emmert. And to a certain extent, the weaker Mark Emmert is, the more power that the Power Five football interests have in uh, making sure that he is uh, carrying their water for them. And that's what he's been doing in this campaign in the Senate and in the public relations campaign. He is nothing more than a chamber of commerce for the Power Five financial interests. But Emmert's just a mouthpiece and he's a front person. And he has perfected the art of empty president speak. And you listen to this guy talk, and you say, oh, okay, that sounds okay. But then when you look at what he actually said, you're like, whiskey, tango, foxtrot. And that's true with, with most of his Senate testimony. But in the 21st century, that's a very valuable skill, not just as a university president, but as the NCAA president, because as the NCAA president, you are the ultimate propagandist and you're defending a, a fundamentally corrupt business model. And how do you do that? Well, you do it through smoke and mirrors and public relations and flowery speeches and, and then use the media to uh, prevent any meaningful scrutiny of that BS. And that model has worked very well for the NCAA. It's the model that really Mark Emmert needs because I don't know what's really underneath all that meaningless, shallow, empty president speak. It's hard to tell. So to a certain extent, the weaker Emmert is, the better off the Power Five are because they, could, they say jump and he says how high. But now they've got a real problem because Emmert's failure of leadership has gotten the entire Power Five big-time college sports business model into a bit of a fix. And remember that the Power Five interests were very happy to let the NCAA and Mark Emmert drive the train on this campaign to achieve the Iron Throne of college sports regulation, both in the Senate through lobbyists hired by the NCAA and in federal litigation with lawyers hired by the NCAA. And in my episode on the powers of the NCAA president, I explained that one of the, the most crucial powers that the NCAA president has is the freedom, without oversight from the Board of Governors, to hire non-administrative personnel, meaning external experts. So Mark Emmert is hiring the lawyers. Mark Emmert is hiring the lobbyists. They're reporting to him. And really, they were reporting to him and Donald Remy before he left. And Remy's absence right now, I think, is being felt, quite frankly, because I think he was carrying a laboring oar on some of these strategy calls and the communications with the people who are actually running college sports right now. And those are lawyers and lobbyists. But those are Emmert's guys. 
And I think that because he was hiring all these heavy-hitting D.C. insiders like Seth Waxman, like Beth Wilkinson, and then bringing Skadden Arps down from New York, I think everybody said, look, we got the best in the game, and we're going to win this thing. And now they're just looking for pieces in the plane crash, and the debris is strewn a, a mile wide. And it is the direct result of Mark Emmert's poor leadership and mismanagement of this entire uh, nil campaign. And so he, his two primary goals were to get a bill out of Congress that was going to give some or all of the protection that the NCAA needs to continue its abusive business model and to manage this Austin case in a way that increased and enhanced the likelihood that they were going to get antitrust immunity in one venue or the other. And both of those have just blown up in his face. And so on the backside of that plane crash, as we're trying to put the pieces back together, nobody seems to be asking how it got to that point. And when you go back and you look at how things played out in COVID and then the Power Five started to, to go their separate way a little bit in the campaign in the Senate. And there was a sense that Emmert and the NCAA's experts weren't getting the job done. And Emmert, again, was pissing people off left and right in the United States Senate. There was this leadership vacuum. And then you look to the Power Five uh, conference commissioners and the uh, presidents, the Power Five presidents and chancellors who are all pointing the finger back at the NCAA. And I'm just laughing. And head coaches were doing this and athletics directors. And where, where are they? Where are the athletics directors on this Austin case? We don't hear from them either. You know, they, they certainly weren't shy uh, to voice their opinions when they were opposing name, image, and likeness compensation. But you have this circular firing squad that Condoleezza Rice uh, talked about. And everybody's pointing the finger, and things are just starting to crumble around their feet. And they deserve each other. Like those Power Five conference commissioners and those you know, Power Five university presidents and the athletics directors and the head football coaches who were pointing the finger at the NCAA, they deserve Mark Emmert. And it was just a complete failure of leadership at every level. And so what are you going to do now? What are you going to do? I don't know if there's much you can do because just, what was it, two months ago, the NCAA Board of Governors voted to extend Mark Emmert's contract as NCAA president to 2025. And the NCAA Board of Governors is in hiding right now. After that decision, the NCAA refused to make a Board of Governors member available for public comment. Yeah, what does that tell you? So it's going to be interesting times, but they kind of, they own Mark Emmert now. And again, I don't know why there isn't a campaign by the membership, by the schools to just say, this is embarrassing. You've completely mismanaged every aspect of this. We just got our asses kicked in the Senate and in the United States Supreme Court. And you were telling us that we were going to be on the road to uh, complete control of college sports. And it's just falling apart. And we, we need an explanation. What's happening here? Who's in charge? Who do we talk to? Who do we look to for answers and then some real leadership moving forward? And that's why I think that this model is so broken and the, the leadership is so dysfunctional and the financial interests have basically paralyzed the people who are supposed to be acting in the best interest of the organizations and ultimately these athletes. 
and it's just not working. So let's just let's just tear it down and start from scratch. Do no harm. And the, we need a temporary injunction to stop the NCAA from ruining college sports any further. That would be irreparable harm. I was talking about that yesterday in terms of the NCAA coming in to stop these state no laws. Maybe the athletes can move for a temporary injunction to prevent the NCAA and Mark Emmert from screwing anything up further. And then we can do a forensic accounting and then if necessary, dismantle the whole system and rebuild it from scratch with some integrity and consistent with the values of college sports and higher education. How about that? (laughs) Don't hold your breath. So with that, that was a rant. Boy, I feel much better now. So there you have it. That's the end of this episode. And I want to thank you for joining me. It's always an honor and a privilege. And I hope to see you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.